you would just watch over and protect all of those who are in the hospitals, the healthcare workers, the nurses, the doctors, Lord, our first responders, all who are on the front lines, Lord, all who are being exposed to this virus each and every day, countless times. We just pray for your divine protection for them. Lord, we lift up those who are sick for your peace and comfort for them, Lord, for your strength. Lord, we lift up this nation and the world to you, Lord, as they struggle with this. I pray, Lord, that this would bring people closer to you, that people would open their Bibles, begin to pray again, Lord, and that we truly would be a land of believers. So, Lord, go before us this morning as we dig into your word. We ask it in your name. Amen. Well, good morning to my Christian brothers and sisters. Those who are joining us live, we good, Joe? Live? So, and those who are joining us on Facebook Live this morning, welcome and good morning. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Matthew 24, verses 28 through 39. Just a little update on how this works, and, and it seems like we always... Get an obstacle, so I thank Joe this morning. I never saw him work so hard. He was back there sweating this morning, trying to live, was down for a few minutes, but he uh, he managed to switch computers and get it going. On a, So I'm amazed at him, and we thank him. We owe him a, a big round of applause if there were anybody here to applaud, applaud him. But uh, thank you, Joe. And so maybe some of you got joined us this morning or wondering where the stream was. It was just a little late getting started. Um, just so you know, we're only allowed to stream the live music on our live stream. We, we upgraded our license to be able to do that. We are not allowed to do that on Facebook, however, so that's why Facebook Live starts a little bit later in the morning, probably around 10, 20, 10, 10.30. So in case you were wondering, just want to let you know. So open your Bibles to Matthew 24. We're going to look at verse 28 first. For wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered together. So Jesus uses the same verbiage in Luke's gospel. Jesus says, I tell you, in that night there will be two men in one bed. One will be taken, the other will be left. Two women will be grinding together. One will be taken, the other left. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken, the other left. And they answered and said to him, Where, Lord? And he said to him, Wherever the body is, though there the eagles will be gathered together. Luke 17, 34 through 37. Now, this is an interesting statement, and it has been interpreted many different ways. But to truly understand what Jesus is talking about here, we have to understand what the time frame is when he says this will happen. And so as we read the text, we discover that this happens at the end of the age. It happens in the tribulation, during the tribulation. After the great tribulation that befalls all of mankind, destroys more than one-third of the world's population, the eagles, or as some of your translations read, the vultures will gather. Now, this obviously is a judgment. And the eagles in the Bible are a sign of judgment. Listen to this verse in Hosea chapter 8. Set the trumpet to your mouth. He shall come like an eagle against the house of the Lord because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. So eagles, especially in this verse, are a sign of judgment. And eagles gathered together in that day will be a sign of the judgment that's come upon the world. 
just as the Bible tells us that it will. So I want you to take note also that Jesus speaks about one being taken and the other one left. And he's also speaking of the judgment there. The disciples ask, where will this be? And Jesus responds, wherever the body is there, the eagles will be gathered together. So wherever the destruction, wherever the the judgment is that's come upon this non-believing, rebellious world, that's where you will see the eagles, or as I said, some of your translations say vultures. Judgment, first in the form of the judgments that come upon the earth, and we're going to read about them when we get to Revelation. And secondly, in the form of the judgment when Jesus returns to this earth to rule and reign, and people, well, great and small, stand before him at the great white throne judgment. Look at verse 29 of Matthew 24. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Listen, the prophets also spoke of this coming event. Isaiah wrote, All the host of heaven shall be dissolved, and the heavens shall be rolled up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall down as a leaf falls from the vine, and as fruit falling from a fig tree. Joel wrote, the earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon grow dark, and the stars diminish their brightness. So I want you to picture this, because we won't be here to see it. But the people in those days, after the tribulation, will be looking up, and they're going to see something in the sky that is going to shock them. You know, I remember when the terrorists attacked the World Trade Center. And I was living in a small town in New Jersey at the time, and I went over to the bay. There's a small area, beach there with a bay. And looking across the bay, you could see the smoke rising up from where the towers once stood. And I couldn't take my eyes off of that sight. I wasn't the only one there that day. There were people there also. We were all watching in shock and horror as to what we were witnessing. And I can imagine the people in that day looking up in the sky and seeing the sun go dark seeing the moon go dark, seeing the stars literally falling out of the sky. You know, the sun that was once a source of comfort for the world, as it, it shone its warm rays, and if you've ever gone outside, after, even after a cold winter's day, and you know, the next, that sun comes out and it begins to warm you, there's a warmth there. There's a, it almost energizes you. That sun's going to go dark. No longer are its rays going to warm the earth. The moon that the world sees. We all see it no matter where we are in the world. We see the moon and we admire it, don't we? How, how many times have you looked up at the moon, especially a full moon, and said, what a beautiful sight, Lord. What an amazing creation. You're no longer going to be able to see the moon illuminated in the sky. Stars that people gaze upon through telescopes are literally going to be falling out of place. And could, so you can imagine the shock and the horror of those left on earth those who are still reeling from the destruction all around them, where a third of the earth, a third of the population of the earth has been destroyed. Those who come through it might be thinking, we made it. Our lives can start going back to normal. We'll, we will rebuild. And then they look up and they see the, the heavens being shaken right before their eyes. And as they're looking up, Jesus says, behold, because you will see the Son of Man coming in his glory. 
Jesus says that sight will cause men's heart to fail, for, to fail for fear of the expectation of those things which are coming to the earth, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken, Luke 21, 26. So as the world looks up, as the people in that day look up, they're going to see a sight so frightening that for many it will cause their hearts to fail. So at that point, the world's attention will be on Jesus. Look at verse 31 of Matthew 24. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet and, another, and will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the heaven to the other. The elect, the Jewish people, the tribulation saints, those who have come through the tribulation. In the tribulation, we know that there will be many who will be saved. Those people that you're witnessing to now, they're going to surrender their hearts and their lives to Jesus Christ during the tribulation. But listen, that's the hard way, isn't it? That's the hard way to go. To give your heart to Christ during the tribulation is going to cost you dearly to call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ. You can avoid that happening. You can avoid going through the tribulation as a follower of Jesus Christ by simply giving your heart to him now, by simply surrendering to him now. And that choice is yours. The choice is yours. You can either go through the tribulation and experience what they're going to experience during that seven-year period, or you can give your heart to Jesus Christ now. For me, that's what we call a no-brainer, isn't it? But sadly, many are going to ignore that advice. Many are going to ignore the warning and continue to do it the hard way because, listen, that's what human nature is, isn't it? We're stiff-necked people. But the Bible's clear, very clear. There will be a judgment. And if you resist surrendering your heart and your life to Jesus Christ now, then you will wind up standing before him one day in judgment. And there will be no defense, no defense that you could possibly offer at that point because you've been given every opportunity to repent and turn to Jesus Christ. Now, the only verdict that's possible is a verdict of guilty. The sentence that'll be issued is a sentence of being separated from God for all eternity, to be put out into the utter darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's not a pretty picture, is it? No one ever wants to even think about that. Many pastors won't even teach that because that doesn't fill seats on a Sunday morning. No one wants to know that this is a possibility. But it's not meant to be a pretty picture. The picture Jesus gives us in the Bible of eternal separation isn't meant to be a pretty picture. It's meant to wake us up and shake us up so that none will perish. Amen? In his parable, The Wheat and the Tares, Jesus tells us what happens to those who rebel against him and the message of the gospel. He answered and said to them, he who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil, and the harvest of the end of the age are the reapers or the angels. Therefore the tares are gathered and burned in the fire. So will it be at the end of this age. The tares are gathered. They're gathered and they face judgment. Two will be working in the field, one will be taken, the other one left. Two will be working from home, one will be taken, the other left. This is a picture of 
the Lord separating the wheat from the tares. You may have heard that expression before, separating the sheep from the goats, separating the sons of light from the sons of darkness. It will be a terrible time on this world, a terrible time indeed to be a follower of Jesus Christ. So I implore you now, if you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, to give your heart to him now before this comes upon the world. Look at verse 32 of Matthew 24. Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branches already become tender and put forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. So Jesus gives us the parable of the fig tree. And I want you to remember, I want you to know that Jesus, as he's going through Matthew 24, talks about two separate events. He's talking about the second coming of, him, of Jesus Christ. He's talking about his second coming. And he's talking about the rapture of the church. The rapture of the church is Jesus coming for his saints. The second coming is Jesus coming with his saints. So there are two separate events, and there are two distinct events, and we'll talk about that much more when we get into the book of Revelation. But remember, disciples are asking him questions, questions like, where would the eagles gather? And Jesus answers them, at the place of judgment. And so Jesus is answering another question for them now. He's answering one of those original questions, what will be the sign of the end of the age? And he gives us the sign of the parable of the fig tree. And he goes in a little bit more detail in Luke's gospel. Look at the fig tree, Jesus says, and all the trees. When they are already, already budding, you see and know for yourselves that summer is now near. So you also, when you see these things happening, know that the kingdom of God is near. Luke 21, 29 through 31. So Jesus is telling them to be prepared, to be watchful. That when you see the fig tree bud, when you see the other trees budding, know that you know that spring is near. So when you see these things happening, and we'll talk about these things, know that the kingdom of heaven is near. Know that my return is near. This answer that Jesus gives them on the Mount of Olives is obviously for them, but I believe he's also looking ahead to his future disciples as he's speaking. And he uses this analogy of the fig tree. Jesus is speaking in the terms of the end of the age, right? The last days. And he knows that his disciples were not going to see the end of the age in their lifetime. And I, so I believe Jesus is speaking directly now to you and I, to those who would be living in the last days, those who are the final generation. And he says to us, learn. Learn from this parable. So what is it that he wants us to learn? Well, first, what's a parable? A parable is a moral lesson. It's taken from the Greek word paraboli, which is to cast or to throw or to come aside. It really literally means to make a comparison. So picture yourself stand, sitting rather on the Mount of Olives, and Jesus is speaking directly to you, looking at your face, and he says, when you see the tender branches of the fig tree, the new branch, which is the new branch, beginning to put forth leaves, which means beginning to live and grow, know that my time is near. And I believe that Jesus is 
comparing the fig tree to the nation of Israel, and more importantly, to a newborn nation of Israel. God has used the nation of Israel and compared them to a fig tree before. In Hosea in chapter 9, verse 10, he says, I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. I saw your fathers as the first ripe in the fig tree in her first time. Jeremiah, who had received the vision of the two baskets full of figs, they represented Israel. God said to him, take these good figs so I will acknowledge them that they are carried away captive of Judah. They were carried away captive of Judah, Jeremiah 24, 5. So God has used the nation of Israel in comparison to the fig tree before. And so this is what I believe Jesus is saying. And listen, don't ever take my word for for this or whatever comes from this pulpit, or any pulpit for that matter. Be a Berean. Search it out for yourselves. When those who are living in the last days, the final generation... When you see the fig tree begin to blossom and put forth figs, Jesus is saying, know that my return is near. So what's he talking about? As the disciples are sitting with him on the Mount of Olives, the temple, this magnificent temple, is still under construction. They couldn't possibly have comprehended, even though Jesus said it would happen, no stone would be left that would be left on top of another, right? They would all be thrown down. They couldn't comprehend this temple being destroyed in their lifetime but it was. And when it was, they probably could never have comprehended the fact that it would lay in waste for years, but it did. Not only was the temple destroyed, the Jewish nation was scattered to the four corners of the earth. When Rome left Jerusalem after they had put down rebellion, after they had destroyed the temple and the city, they renamed it Palestine after Israel's archenemy, the Philistines. So Israel no longer, at least in the eyes of their enemy, existed as a nation. The Jewish people no longer had anywhere to call home. And it remained that way until 1948 when Israel became a nation once again. Never in history had a nation that was so completely destroyed and its people scattered throughout the world became a nation again. But God said that that's exactly what would happen. Listen to God speaking through his prophet Isaiah. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall the earth be made to give birth in one day? Or shall a nation be born at once? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she gave birth to her children. Shall I bring to the time of birth and not cause delivery? Says the Lord, shall I also cause... Delivery shut up the cause delivery shut up the womb, says our God. Isaiah chapter 66, verses 8 through 9. So Israel, the tender fig branch, would be born, reborn in one day. And that day occurred on May 14, 1948. And her children, the fig leaves, began to return to the nation of Israel. And to this day, they are still returning to the nation of Israel. God also gave the prophet Ezekiel a glimpse of the rebirth of the nation of Israel. And he gives that to us in Ezekiel 37 in the dry bones prophecy. Now we're not going to read the whole chapter, which I'm sure many of you are happy to hear. But I encourage you to read Ezekiel 37, 38, 39, because it contains prophecy that is relevant for us today. 
And, and listen, if you have any questions about what you read, please feel free to ask me, either email or message me or ask me personally, but I'd be more than happy to, to go through it with you. But I do want to read just a couple verses in Ezekiel 37. God says to Ezekiel, prophesy to these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, surely I will cause breath to enter into you and you shall live. I will put sinews on you and bring flesh upon you, cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. Ezekiel 37 verses 4 through 6. The nation Israel is those dry bones in the valley. They had no land. The people were scattered. They were a nation considered dead by their enemies. They, they had become a skeleton of what they formerly were. But God said that he would bring them back to life. He would breathe life in them. He would reanimate them, if you will. And so a nation was reborn in one day on May 14, 1948. And Jesus is telling us to learn from this parable. That when we see this happen, to know that his return is near. Listen, Israel is the center of the earth. It's the center physically, spiritually, and prophetically. So as followers of Jesus Christ, we need to be watching what goes on in Israel and the Middle East and the nations around it. Watching, waiting, anticipating excitedly for his return. Keep a close eye on Israel and the nations around it, the other trees. Because what the other nations, the other trees around Israel do in relation to Israel is going to set off, if you're watching and you're paying attention and you are students of prophecy, it's going to set off a bunch of alarms for you because you'll know the more signs that we see fulfilled, especially in the Middle East, the closer we are to our groom returning for his church. So then Jesus gives us another clue, another clue that marks the return of his rule and reign on this earth in verse 34. Surely I say to you, the generation will by no means pass away till these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. This generation will not pass away until these things take place. So that causes us to ask a couple questions. First, who is Jesus referring to? Second, how long is a generation, right? And third, what things are he talking about? What things need to take place? So let's answer the first question first because I've always dis determined that that's the best place to start with number one. Who is Jesus referring to? I believe Jesus is referring to the degeneration born after May 14, 1948. And so that brings up the next question, how long is a generation? Now, there's a lot of opinions, a lot of speculation on what a generation is. Who would have ever thought that Bible prophecy could create such difference of opinions? In the end, however, the only opinion that matters, the only one that matters is God's opinion. Because listen, if this doesn't shake out exactly as we see it, or as you've had it taught to you, or you believe in your own heart, because listen, we're fallible, we're only human. If it, if it doesn't shake out exactly the way we're saying it might, it doesn't matter, does it? 
Because it's never going to change the fact that Jesus is coming back for his church. It's never going to change the fact that Jesus is coming back to this earth to rule and reign. So no matter how this works out, no matter what the sequence is, it's never going to change the fact that Jesus is coming back. And we need to be prepared for that. Now some believe that a generation is only 40 years. And they get that from the fact that the Israels walk, the Israelites walked through the desert for 40 years. That's probably what sparked the author of the book, 88 Reasons Why Jesus is Coming Back in 1988, to write such a book. If you take 1948 and you add 40 years to it, what do you come up with? 1988. I believe a generation is much longer than 40 years, though. And I base that conclusion on two verses. In Genesis chapter 15, verses verse 1 through 16, God's talking to Abraham. And he says to Abraham, you will be enslaved for 400 years, down to the fourth generation. Now, I'm not very good at math, but even I know that four goes into, you know, we're talking about 100 years. 400 years down to the fourth generation, that's 100 years. So God, according to God, a generation is about 100 years. In Genesis 6, 3, 6 chapter 6, verse 3, the Lord said to Noah that he wouldn't strive with man forever, and man would now only live, get this, only live to be 120 years old. So again, from God, we see that a generation could be up to 120 years. Experts suggest, if you're getting ready to retire, if you're planning for retirement, that you should plan on living till you are 84 years old if you're a man. And if you're a woman, you should plan on living till you're 86 and a half years old because women live longer than men because men do dumb stuff. Now, currently, there are people in the world who have outlived this average age range. In Japan, there's a woman who, as of March 2020, is 114 years old. Brazil has a woman as of March 2020, and by the way, all of these people I'm going to mention now, all these women are still alive, is 114 years old. There's a woman in North Dakota, not to leave the United States out, who is 114 years old. South Carolina has a woman who's 115 years old. Now, in case you're wondering, if there's any men who've ever lived over the age of 100, well, there are, but they're not with us any longer. <laughs> God rest their soul. Because, again, women live longer than men. Israel had a man who was 113 years old at the time of his death. Germany and Spain had two men who were 114 years of age at the time of their death. The United States has a man who was 113 and another one who was 114 at the time of their death. There was a guy who lived in Japan who was thought to be 117 years old at the time of his death in 2013. But the oldest living person currently alive is, yeah, you guessed it, a woman. And she is currently 117 years old as of January. So we see quite clearly that people can live past 100 years old. So it's not a stretch to say that a generation could be considered 100 years. But please, and I emphasize that word, please do not take this as date setting. Because it's pretty easy to add 100 to 1948, isn't it? Please don't take this as date setting. You need to know that the rapture of the church could happen at any time, and that's exactly what the Bible tells us. When God the Father determines that it is time 
You know, I always use the illustration of the deli clock. There's a deli clock. I, in my, this is how my brain works. And the de- there's a deli clock in heaven. It's, it's, a, it's a very good deli clock, but there's a deli clock in heaven. And as that number clicks down to zero, God will turn to his son and say, okay, son, go get your bride. But only he knows that, and we're going we're gonna to find out why. We're going to discover why that's the case here in a few minutes. To say that we have, see the date set, to start adding things up, is to start thinking in your mind that we have time. We have time. And to think that we have time before our groom returns for his church is a great misunderstanding. We, as the bride of Christ, awaiting our groom, need to be ready at all times for our groom to return for his bride because he could return at any time. He could return before we finish this message this morning. And Jesus said, when you see these things take place, know that the end is near. What things are Jesus talking about? Well, he's talking about the generation. When you see Israel become a nation, when you see the signs that are going to begin to increase with frequency and intensity, know that the time is near. Jesus tells us, I believe us, the final generation, whether it happens in my lifetime or over the next however many years, These are the things you need to watch for. Are we watching? Are we anxiously waiting for the return of the groom for his bride? Are we? Look at verse 36. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. And that's where we get in trouble. Jesus said, nobody knows. He doesn't even know. The angels don't know. How could that be? Well, when Jesus said those words to his disciples, they understood exactly what he meant, without a doubt. You see, Jesus is referencing something that they knew very well. He's referencing a Galilean wedding. And since that every single one of them were Galileans, they understood something, or they understood this, and they knew exactly what Jesus was talking about. Jesus is preparing his disciples for the day of his return for his bride, the church. Why is Jesus coming back? Why? Do you ever ask yourself that question? Why is Jesus coming back for his church? Because where's bride? If we were married and you hadn't seen your bride for a year, wouldn't you want to get to her as quickly as possible? That's why he's coming back. It's pretty simple. It's very plain and simple. He's coming back for his bride because he loves us and wants to be with us for all eternity. And he's warning us, he's warning the world that he is coming back. Not as a suffering servant this time, but as a king to rule and reign on this earth for a thousand years. And again, we'll see that as we get into Revelation. So what Jesus is talking about here in reference to a Galilean wedding is the rapture of the church, his bride. Because Jesus says, of that day, he's referring to the day Jesus comes for his bride. And so Jesus is using an ancient wedding custom, a Galilean wedding custom, to illustrate for us what the rapture will be like. So when he says, no one knows the day or the hour, not the angels in heaven, 
not even the bridegroom, only the father knows he's talking about a Galilean wedding. And we're going to look at this in more detail when we get to chapter 4 of Revelation, but I'm going to give you a little taste of it now. So after a wedding, after the wedding contract, as you know, in that day, the groom had to approach the bride's parents and he had to present them with a contract of how he was going to take care of his bride, how he was going to provide for her. That became the wedding contract. And after the father of the bride agrees to this, the groom would hand the bride a cup of wine. And if the bride accepted the cup of wine, the wedding was confirmed. Now, it didn't quite go as it does in, in the United, in, around the world where they now go and they get married, have reception, go on a honeymoon. That's not how it worked. After all this was completed, the groom would then leave. And he would be away for up to a year or more. And while he was gone, he would build an addition on his father's house, an addition that they would live in after the wedding. And so you can imagine that this groom would get back to his father's house as quickly as possible. He'd purchase all the materials as quickly as he could. He'd get all the room built and get it done and have it all ready. And his father would come in and inspect it and said, looks great, son. He says, good. It's time for me to go get my bride. He says, nope, not yet. Not yet. Only the father knew when it was time for the groom to return for the bride. And so as the groom now waits in anticipation, because he's away from his bride, he can't wait to see her again. And the bride has something to do also while she's waiting. She's to remain chaste and pure for her groom. And in all this is going on. The father is patiently waiting as his son's is it time yet? Is it time yet? Is it time yet? And I don't think Jesus is doing that, but he's patiently waiting for the right time to say to his son, son, it's time for you to go get your bride. And Jesus, the groom, the church, his bride, Jesus has left his church here on this earth to go to his father's house to prepare a place for us. Isn't that what he said? Isn't that what he said he would do? In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you, John 14, 2. That place that he's building is in addition to his Father's home in heaven. It's a place for you and I. He's building that place for his church, the bride. And so when God the Father finally says to God the Son, Son, it's time to go get your bride, Jesus will gather the wedding party and form a procession and come and get his bride. Just so that where we are, where he is rather, there we will also be. Didn't Jesus say that as well? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may also be, John 14, 3. So once the groom retrieves his bride, the groom and the bride return to the father's home, and once they're there, the door is locked, and no one else is allowed to enter. And then the seven-day feast of the wedding begins. We will be celebrating the feast with Jesus in heaven. Jesus said so. But when I, what I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of this vine from now until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom, Matthew 26, 29. He's talking about the marriage supper of the Lamb. We will be with him at that wedding feast while the rest of the world is going through the seven-year tribulation. 
while they're going through the seven-year tribulation, we will be with our Lord in heaven. And then Jesus gives them another sign of the end of the age. Look at verses 37 through 39. But as the days of Noah were, so also is the coming of the Son of Man, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving into marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man, just as it was in the days of Noah. And this is maybe one of the most significant signs. Jesus also said in Luke's gospel, as it was in the days of Lot. And as it was in the days of Noah, so it will also be in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage, until the day Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, as it was also in the days of Lot. They ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even so will it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed, Luke 17 verses 26 through 30. So Noah and Lot lived in different eras. There were a hundred plus years separating these two men. It would kind of like being living in the Civil War era in the 1880s and someone living in the protest era of the 1960s. Two different eras. And although there were several years that separated them, one thing these two generations shared was that God said that their generations were clueless of the judgment to come upon them. So it, was, so it was in the days of Noah and Lot, so it is in the days that we live in today, isn't it? So let's look at what it was like in the days of Noah. God said this about the days of Noah. When the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, Genesis 6-5, so, in the days of Noah, the wickedness of man was great in the earth. You know what? Even in the days of Noah, they had a moral code. Although the law hadn't been written yet, they knew right from wrong. They knew from their ancestors, Adam and Eve, that God required repentance of their sins. They knew through their ancestors that God required forgiveness, that the only way they had forgiveness of their sins was through a blood sacrifice. They understood right from wrong. They weren't completely ignorant to that fact. For instance, Cain knew that his feelings toward his brother Abel were wrong. Cain knew that it was wrong to murder his brother. He tried to hide it, remember? He knew murder was wrong, and so did everyone in his day that came after him. Yet, by the time Noah came along, people on the earth were choosing to sin rather than obey God. Every thought and intention of their heart were continually evil, meaning they knew it was right, but they ignored it and did what they thought was right in their own minds. God goes on to say the earth was also corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. So God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Genesis 6, verses 11 through 12. The earth was a violent place to live in the days of Noah. Life was cheap. Nobody had compassion for their fellow man. There was injustice, corruption, cheating, stealing, deception, sexual sin. All of that ruled the, day, the lives of the people in the days of Noah. That's what it was like to live in that time. 
the corruption was so rampant that only a very small remnant of the people on the earth at that time were not affected by it, Noah and his family. So what was it like in the days of Lot? The Bible tells us exactly what was going on in the days of Lot. It's almost like reading a newspaper today. As I live, now through God speaking through the prophet Ezekiel, as I live, says the Lord God, neither your sister Sodom nor her daughters have done as you and your daughters have done. Look, this was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, fullness of food, and abundance of idleness. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and needy, and they were haughty and committed abomination before me, before I took them away as I saw fit. Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 48 through 50. So the people of Lot's day were prideful. They were materialistic. They were self-absorbed. They were pleasure-seeking, without compassion, and worshiper of idols. Does any of that sound familiar today? Jude also gives us some insight into the days of Lot. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire, Jude 7. So the people of Lot's day were also practicing sexual perversion. Now we know that the sin of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah was so great that the Lord destroyed both of those cities with fire and brimstone. So let's look at both the day. Let's compare them now, the days of Noah and Lot, and see if they're like the days that we live in. In the days of Noah and Lot, sin was rampant. People were self-absorbed. They were proud. They were violent. They were sexually perverse and morally corrupt. Again, sounds like the newspaper of today, doesn't it? They were not lovers of the truth, but lovers of self. They knew the right thing to do, but they chose to sin instead. They had no clue of the judgment that was about to befall them. They got up each day thinking that they ruled the day that there would be no judgment for their sin because, listen, they had already justified their sin in their hearts. They had blinders on. To them, it wasn't sin. They had already justified it. So there was no need for them to be judged because they weren't sinful, in their minds at least. And that's the attitude they took with them to their death. So how does that compare to our day? Look around us. What do we see? We see abortion. The murders, murder of innocent babies, and in some places that occurs just minutes before a baby's born. Gang violence, murder in the street fueled by greed and a drug abuse, rape, sexual assault, sexual perversion. We see people self-absorbed, morally corrupt, proud, violent. Life today is as cheap as it was in those days. And there seems to be no compassion for our fellow man. Sin's rampant. People know what the right thing to do is, yet they do what makes them feel right. The thoughts of people have been influenced by movies, TVs, and the internet. And so those minds which are influenced by that media today, what's on that media? They're being bombarded with sex and violence, making the thoughts of man continually evil, just as God said it was in the days of Noah. We're living, listen, we are living in the days of Noah and Lot. Days that Paul wrote, when he wrote to Timothy, said this was what it was going to be like at the end times. But know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come. 
For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1-4. through four. Days when the prophet Isaiah said would be turned upside down. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for the light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Do we see that today? Like Noah and Lot, we live in a time where we call evil good and good evil. And like the days of Noah and Lot, we live in a time where mankind doesn't want to hear the word sin. They, want, they, want, they don't want to know that they're in sin. They don't want to know what the truth is because absolute truth to them is absolutely what they believe it to be. They're oblivious today. People are oblivious to the judgment that's going to come upon them. They're walking around with blinders on thinking that they've done nothing wrong to be judged for. We're good people. Listen, they thought the same way in the days of Noah and Lot. You know, that ark, as it was being built in the desert, took 100 years to build. A hundred years to build an ark, a boat, a big boat, in the middle of a place that had never even seen rain. They hadn't even seen a drop of rain, let alone enough rain to float a huge ark. Do you think in that day that someone, that many someones didn't ask Noah and his sons, hey, you maniacs, why are you building a boat in the middle of the desert? Do you think they asked them that? Do you think that Noah and his sons told them, listen, God told me to build this ark because he's going to bring judgment and destruction upon this world. They didn't listen, did they? And although it seems like judgment and destruction came upon the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah rather quickly, remember, their destruction came only after the outcry of their sin was so great that God had to put an end to it. Now, we know God to be long-suffering. He was certainly long-suffering with every one of us. So the sin there had to be so rampant and go on for so long that God knew the only way that he was going to put an end to that was to destroy those cities and bring judgment upon them. Do you think that Lot who lived there in Sodom didn't tell them about the destruction of Noah in Noah's day and remind them that they were living the same way they were living in the days of Noah and that they were in danger of being judged and destroyed the same way? Listen, I believe they were warned. And even if Lot never said a word to them, they knew the story of the flood. They knew why God brought judgment upon the people in Noah's day. And yet they chose to live their lives exactly the way the people in Noah's day did. We're seeing people live in the exact same way today, aren't we? Without a thought, without a thought of a coming judgment, without a thought of the need of a Savior. But the good news is, that in both of these accounts, in both of these errors, the righteous were saved from the judgment to come. Noah and his family entered the ark, and once that door was closed, no one was allowed in. It was too late. The people of Noah's days had a hundred years, a hundred years, to make a decision to get on that ark. None of them except Noah and his family did, and now it's too late. When did they realize that they made a mistake? When did they realize that they were wrong? When the water was at their ankles? When it was at their knees, their waist, their neck? 
Did they think at some point somebody's going to pull a plug here and the water's just going to drain away? Maybe up till the water was over their heads that they start thinking, wow, I messed up. I should have listened to Noah. The people of our day are no different. When are they going to realize this? When the earthquakes happen more frequently and with more intensity, when the pestilence happens with more frequency and more intensity, and it keeps going and going and going, at what point do people realize that what the Bible's saying is going to happen and is already happening? At what point do they realize this, it may, it's getting close to being too late? You know, the picture, the ark is a picture for us, a type, if you will, of salvation. It's a type of, of Jesus. Those who were on the ark were saved from the judgment to come. And when Jesus comes back to this earth to rule and reign, the door to salvation is going to be closed. It's going to be too late when they look up and see the Son of Man returning in his glory. It's going to be too late then. Only those who are in Christ before this happens will be saved from the judgment to come. So what's the application of all this? If you walk away from this message with and remember just one thing this morning, this is what I'd like you to remember. Be prepared. Be prepared. No one knows the day or the hour. However, Jesus wants us to be prepared. He is anxiously, the groom is anxiously awaiting, pacing back and forth in heaven. Is it time yet? Is it time yet? He wants to come and get us. He misses us. He wants us with him. We, on the other hand, should be anxiously awaiting his return. Listen, it could come at any moment, right? Or as a good friend of mine said, the rapture could happen for any one of us the moment our heart stops. Listen to that, what I just said. The rapture could happen for any one of us the minute our heart stops. We need to be ready to meet our Lord. Whether it's in the air with the church or it's face-to-face when he calls us home, we need to be ready. But listen, here's the fear. It's a fear that I have. It's a fear that many of my brothers have. The church, the bride of Jesus Christ, is asleep today. Jesus said to his disciples in the garden, couldn't you just watch for an hour? Couldn't you stay awake and watch for an hour? Those words should be constantly ringing in our ears. Stay awake. Watch. Because the groom could return for his bride at any time. At the very least, even if our Lord tarries, what, what change would that make in our lives? Well, let me tell you. We would live our lives differently, wouldn't we? We would live, we're living our lives expecting him to come at any moment. That's a great thing. And whether he tarries or not, that's a great thing how to live our lives because it changes our perspective of this life and it changes our priorities in this life, doesn't it? If you're living every day expecting the Lord could come that day, if you get up every morning expecting the Lord could come today, if you go to bed every night expecting the Lord could come tonight, you're living your life differently. Your priorities are differently. Your perspective has changed, hasn't it? So are you watching? Are you anxiously waiting for the return of our groom for his church? Now I'm going to get in trouble here, I'm sure, but it's who I am. I heard a pastor say, if you aren't looking up, he is not coming for you. That's a hard saying, isn't it? That's a tough saying, because I don't know anybody, a Christian, who doesn't think the Lord's coming for them. That's a hard saying. 
But listen, if you are the bride, you should be just as anxiously awaiting the return of your groom as your groom is waiting for you. And if you aren't, if you're so involved with the things of this world that you've forgotten that the groom is coming back for you, then maybe you aren't his bride. Now, I don't say this in a judgmental way, and neither did my friend. I ask this question the same, for the same reason that I ask this question of myself all the time. Right? Paul says, search yourselves to know that you remain in the faith. Judge yourself. Are you excited for the return of Jesus Christ? As I said before, do you wake up each morning thinking this could be the day? Do you go to bed at night thinking this could be the night? Do you have an anticipation that your groom could return at any time? And if not, why not? Why not? If not, I pray that this message this morning wakes you up and shakes you up. Because our groom could return at any moment for his church, the bride. And if you're not really excited about that, then you need to ask God why. You need to ask God to search your heart and reveal why you don't have an excitement about that. Maybe the reason that you're not excited is because you've fallen asleep. Then wake up. Stay up. Spiritually, that is. Because this could happen at any time. So be prepared. If you take nothing else away from this message today, take away the fact that the groom is coming for his church, the bride. We are the church. We are his bride. And we should be anxiously, excitingly waiting for that to happen. Are you ready? Are you anxiously waiting? Are you his bride? And I know that's going to offend a lot of people, even a lot of Christians, but I'd much rather my words wake you up and shake you up and get you to realize your need to get your life right with the Lord now before you miss the coming of the groom for his bride. So if you are his, be prepared, because that could happen at any moment. And if you're not his, you also need to be prepared. Because, listen, you need to become his, his bride, in order for you to be anticipating his return. We call that getting saved. So I want to share the gospel message here for a moment for everyone out there who's still listening to me on live stream and on Facebook Live and, and everyone in the sound of my voice. God tells us that we are separated him by, from, by sin. We are separated from God. Isaiah 59.2 tells us, But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Jesus tells us that the only way to be reconciled to God the Father and the only way to be saved is through him. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father, no one goes to heaven except through me, John 14.6. So why? Why do we need to be saved? Well, as I've already pointed out, we've all sinned. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3.10 tells us there's none righteous, not even one. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But it's not as hopeless as that sounds. Because God has given us a way to be saved from the judgment to come. And remember, whether you're waiting for the rapture or not... You could be standing, you could be 
find yourself, you could close your eyes on, him, on the earth, and the next time you open your eyes, you could be standing at the great white throne judgment. So this could happen. It could be too late for you the moment your heart stops beating. Romans 3.23 also tells us, For the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our God, our Lord. rather. That's the good news. And that God demonstrates his own love for us, that while we were still sinners, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5.8. Jesus died on the cross so that you and I could be saved, so that we were, would be his. We would be that bride, and he would be our groom. So what is it that you must do to be saved? The Bible tells us that if you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 10. Romans 10, 13 says, For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And so once you call upon the name of the Lord and you believe in your heart that Jesus Christ died for you, and rose from the dead, and you're saved, what's the result of that salvation? Romans 5, verses 1 through 2 tells us, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Romans 8, 1 says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You are forgiven and your sins are removed as far as the east is from the west. So there are steps to your eternal salvation. First, admit. Admit that you're a sinner. Admit that you've sinned. Second, once you've admitted that sin, once you've confessed that sin to God, turn from that sin, which we call repentance. Repent from your sin, and then turn to Jesus. Call upon his name, and you will be saved. And then the Bible tells us you will be forgiven. Your sin will be forgiven, washed away. As far as the east is from the west, or as I love that verse in the Casting Crown song, from one outstretched hand to another. And then you will know, then you will know that you are his and that your salvation is assured. So if you've never done that, I implore you to get on your knees this morning, wherever you are, and ask the Lord Jesus to be your Lord and Savior. Surrender yourself to him. Give your heart to him. Know that you know that you know that you are the bride that he's coming for. Surrender your life to Jesus today. Amen? Let's pray. You want to cut off Facebook Live for us? Till next week, family. Lord, thank you for your message. Thank you for who you are. Thank you, Lord, for the amazing signs that you've given us. Help us, Lord, to have a passion now to, to go out amongst the, in this world, this dark world, and share that message. Share your love. Share the gospel. We ask it in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. God bless you.